Welcome to the Westside Gathering Podcast, and thanks for making the time to learn and grow with us. Here, you'll find teaching from our live Sunday gatherings. After the message, we'll say a little more about our church and how you can connect. But for now, let's jump right in. It's a real honor to, uh, to get to be here with you um, for reasons that I don't have time uh, to talk about. Uh, there's, as I have, within the last year, uh, learned about the 24-7 prayer movement and have met you know, many of its leaders, um, there's just a deep resonance. Um, with my own journey of following Jesus, I um, encountered Jesus in a way that I really could understand um, through an outreach ministry to skateboarders in Portland. Um, there was a, uh, a church with a lot of older people in it who really believed in this young man named Paul who believed he was called as a missionary to skateboarders in Portland. And he built a skateboard park um, that has uh, been sharing the good news of Jesus with thousands of skateboarders for going on 37 years now, um, every weeknight uh, in, in Portland, Oregon. And I was one of those teenagers that started coming to the skate park. Uh, and it took about three and a half years for the stories of Jesus to kind of work their way into my soul. And I really believe that those are the kinds of projects and the kinds of mission that uh, this movement is of the very same spirit of doing those same kinds of innovative things and sensing where the spirit is going. And so lots of resonance with your mission of prayer, mission, and justice. So it's a real honor to get to be here. I also have a lot of other feelings about being here, too. Um, I am uh, here because uh, Brian and uh, Pete and Tyler invited me to come. And so uh, here's, here's the thing. Um, I am a card-carrying uh, Bible nerd. <laughs> um, and I, yeah, yeah, no shame. No, no shame at all. Um, but, uh, you know, it is uh, both my temperament, uh, my gifting, and most of my training and vocational calling uh, has all been in um, cultivating a tool set to study, research, understand scripture, to teach and to write and to share um, its story with other people. And it's been amazing, and it's been an amazing journey. But here's the thing. Um, this is not the 24-7 Bible conference. <laughs> this is the 24-7 prayer conference. And if it were the 24-7 Bible conference, I, my, the feelings I, I would have are like lots of like, I'm comfortable here, this is my jam, you know? Uh, um, but when it comes to 24-7, prayer conference, I have a lot of other feelings, and I have to be frank about those feelings if I'm going to say anything with integrity right now. And so the feelings that I actually have had upon receiving this invitation to come have been feelings of guilt and a sense of shame about the lack of prayer in my life over my 25 years of following Jesus. Not that I haven't prayed, I have prayed a lot but not nearly as much as if I really believed it accomplished something. Because I often don't believe it accomplishes anything. And because of that feeling of guilt and shame, I feel a lot of fear because I have a lot of friends who seem to really believe it accomplishes something and experience <laughs> like that it does in their lives. And then I'm like afraid of my like, why am I missing out on something? Like where, where is this thing and why don't I feel like I have access to it? 
And, you know, enough years uh, have gone by where I just began to feel a sense of resignation that this is just kind of how it's going to be. And I'm really glad I have the Bible, you know. Um, <laughs> but um, I'm not sure what it was, maybe entering my middle 40s. Um, maybe it was the period of COVID isolation. Um, but a few years ago, I just really entered a period of deep uh, sadness about this. Because it's not just about prayer. It was um, about the lack of a sense of awareness that there is a person that I am relating to. Of course, I can show that Jesus is a historical person. But I just uh, felt like this, a lack of live relational connection with Jesus in my life. And um, while I um, love scripture, and I, like, remember, I'm a Bible nerd, right? <laughs> I actually have no other employable skills, actually. <laughs> like, it's the only tool set I've got, you know? Uh, and I, I find the tapestry of vibrant, beautiful themes in scripture so sublime and beautiful. Um, but that has not been equaled for many years of my following Jesus with a live sense of the person and that person's presence of the living Jesus in my life. And I'm just being honest because um, I don't know what I have to lose. <laughs> and because I know that I'm not alone. I know there are lots of people who uh, have the exact same experience that I've had. And so, um, uh, but that's begun to change in the last uh, 18 months um, in a way that was a real surprise for me. And I want to tell you that story. I have lots of things that I'm going to share about the Bible. <laughs> um, but I feel like I need to share that story of my experience as well. Um, because you need two wings to fly a plane. Yeah? Um, we all are having our journey and our experience with Jesus that needs to be both shaped and guided by the beauty and wisdom of Scripture. But what makes Scripture what it is, a tool of the Spirit to speak new life into our lives and our communities, is precisely by having new experiences of what God is doing in our midst. You guys get what I'm saying? Yes. So to tell you the story about uh, the last 18 months of my life, uh, I'm going to tell you a parable. And the parable is real uh, because it happened to me uh, about seven weeks ago. Um, one of the gifts of the season of spiritual renewal in my life is a, a sense of the presence of Jesus in really surprising ways. And one of the ways that it happened to me um, was on the north side of Mount Hood. So I live in Portland, Oregon, on the west coast of the United States, and uh, there is a ring going from all the way up into Canada and then down through the state of Washington, Oregon, California, um, a mountain chain. It's called the Cascade Mountain Range. Um, it's also called the Ring of Fire because uh, it has all of these really tall, non-dormant volcanoes. One of those volcanoes is an hour and a half from my house. <laughs> and uh, um, its glaciers actually supply the drinking water uh, for the greater Portland area. And uh, I've just fallen in love with uh, going anywhere I can to explore all of the different parts of this mountain because it has been sourcing my water and my life for about three quarters of my life that I've lived in Portland. And so seven weeks ago, I, I went on a three-day, like, solitude and, and prayer backpacking trip. Um, I've never done anything like that before, but this is a season of trying new things in my life. And so um, my goal was to go be in one of my favorite, most beautiful places and do it with Jesus and talk to him and see if he had anything to say to me there. 
And so um, what I love about, any backpackers? Any hikers, trail runners, anybody? Yeah, okay. So here's what's so great about pushing your body to the extreme, carrying, you know, heavy loads on your, on your back. Um, and actually, you can do this without carrying a heavy load on your back. Um, one thing that I love uh, <clears throat> about backpacking and trail running um, is the experience of uh, what some people call the runner's high. The runner's high. So when you really push your body um, to extreme limits of endurance, your body floods itself with natural chemicals. They're called endorphins. And they make you feel really, really good. Um, and another thing, at least what happens to me, um, is that my thinking gets really clear and really focused. And so what I often do um, is save up uh, like theological or biblical puzzles or things that I'm thinking about for a trail run and I'll kind of stock the mental list and I'm like ready, I'm hit the trail, I'm, I'm breathing and I'm focused and I turn into the rich interior world that is my mind. <laughs> um, and so that's what I did. And uh, in the first three miles of the hike, I, I had a lot of elevation, and so I just like, here we go. I'm working on some things in Exodus chapter 4 today, and up the trail we go. And because the Exodus 4 is wild, and <laughs> that would be a whole other talk, but anyhow. <laughs> um, so I was going up the trail, and actually I was uh, going about three and a half miles to a turn um, to explore this place that is no joke, you'll see why this is ironic and meaningful later, uh, to a place called Eden Park uh, to look for some campsites for that night. And so I'm just like cruising, I'm having a great time, I'm sessioning Exodus 4 in my mind. Um, and uh, up on the left, I see rustling in the bushes. And so the first thing I think is like it's an animal, um, but then it's not running away. And then that's not good. If it's an animal that's not running away, it's, it's an animal that could kill you. And so um, it wasn't, though. It wasn't an animal. It was a woman crouching down in the bushes. And I'm not sure if that's any better. <laughs> I'm like, what's going on here? And so um, I, I get up, and I, what, this all happened in like two seconds. So like what I thought was she is, uh, I would say, going to the bathroom in the U.S. What would you say? Going to the bathroom? Of course, there's no bathroom. Well, actually, there is a bathroom. Here's what's so great about backpacking <laughs> is you can go to the bathroom wherever you want and with, usually have great views while you're doing it, too. And so I thought that's what was happening. I was like, I've come across a woman. She's, you know, in the bushes going to the bathroom. I'm just going to, like, keep on going. And all of a sudden, I realized she wasn't going to the bathroom. She stood up, and her mouth was full. And she held out her hands, and she said, look at all of these huckleberries. Now, I've been informed that here in the UK, you don't have a thing that you call huckleberries, but, but think of it like a wild blueberry. You guys have blueberries? Yeah, yeah okay, there you go. So, I mean, what I, what I looked around and I realized that I was surrounded by the densest, uh, uh, most filled huckleberry bushes, like wild, what, what do you want me to call them, huckleberries or blueberries? What do you prefer? Yeah, huckleberries, okay, because that's, that's what I call them. So that's what they are. <laughs> um, so can we get the picture uh, back up there? So, I mean, this is like if you go to a rural farm and it's like the U-pick berry bushes. I, that's what it was like. And I looked back down the trail, and for as far down as I could see, about a mile, it was just huckleberry bushes that I had been walking through. And I looked up another, like, three-quarters of a mile to the turn, and it was just 
huckleberries. And there was something about the timing and the weather and you know, a million factors for why those berries were there along this big stretch of certain elevation on the side of the volcano. And so, um, you know, once I did this, the only thing reasonable to do, which was to pull aside and start eating a lot of huckleberries. <laughs> and and uh, you guys, the huckleberries followed me for all three days of my hike. And I had them as snacks. I put them in my you know, trail mix. I had them so many in my oatmeal every morning. And I discovered that this is a kind of berry that keeps your digestive system very regular. <laughs> <laughs> And that's a good thing on the trail. You know, you want to keep the system clear, you know. Um, <laughs> so I really enjoyed the huckleberries, clearly. Um, and as I went on, you know, uh, experiencing huckleberries for the rest of my time there, I went up, on day two, I went up on this real high, high point, about as high up as you can go on this one ridge without having to put on ropes or spikes or anything. And I, um, in a really distinct way, felt like the Spirit invited me to see that experience as like an embodied parable of my spiritual journey over um, the last few years. In the exact same spot where I stood when I first came across the woman in the bushes, I was leaning into a habit that I have, and it's basically how I approach life in general, which is primarily through my mind. And my life as a whole is essentially summed up with what I was doing on the trail, which is focus, reduce uh, distractions, and invest in this rich world inside my mind that is beautiful, and I love it in here. <laughs> and, it, and because I love to entertain sublime ideas about the most beautiful one who like, exists, and so, like, why wouldn't I just want to hang out in there and uh, ponder the greatest mysteries of the universe? And that's what I often do. Um, but one thing that um, that rich interior world doesn't afford me very often is being aware of my actual body <laughs> and being aware of my physical surroundings. And so I really felt invited to see that moment as a, a real turning point that the Spirit is inviting me into at this point in my life because like the berries obviously weren't, the berries are just there. The berries were surrounding me. The berries had been surrounding me for that, almost that entire ascent all the way up. When I went back down a few days later, I was like, it's awful berries the whole way. And I, it, was, I, it was me that was oblivious, yeah? You get what I'm saying? And so all of a sudden, like I'm so thankful for that woman because all of a sudden the whole landscape shifted. And I was standing in the exact same place that I had been before I encountered that woman. And I, I really believe that um, there is something really important for me, and there might be something important for you. Um, what the biblical authors would call that, at least uh, in Greek, the Greek New Testament authors would call this an apocalypsis or an apocalypse, um, which doesn't mean the end of the world. Uh, it means uh, a moment when something is uncovered. And it was there all along, but you just didn't know it was there. You didn't have the framework or ability to see it. Or, more likely, that you and I have been formed through our habits of mind and body and heart in such a way that we are ignorant of things that are right there around us all of the time, but we've been taught or shaped in ways 
that we don't expect to see anything there at all. And uh, I realized that uh, I had invested uh, my mind in discipleship to Jesus in a very focused way for many years, um, but that I had a, a severely underdeveloped soul. And my ability to experience realities apart from my mind had really diminished. And I didn't mean for this to happen, uh, I, and I won't blame my tradition and choices, it's just, it's where I found myself. And um, the Spirit really gave me a gift that day on the side of the mountain uh, because I really, uh, really believed um, that it was what I needed to help me see what God is up to in my life and what I have a deep hunch of what He's up to in lots of people's lives. And so um, there's a lot more to that story that I could tell. I'll tell a few more um, bits in a little bit. But here's what I'd like to do. I'd like you to just hold that parable in your mind. Because you guys, the huckleberries are everywhere. <laughs> do you get what I'm saying? <laughs> They're everywhere. Um, what that experience also has done for me is help me to appreciate ideas in Scripture that I knew were there and that I have loved to think about for a lot of years, uh, but they've become very personal and meaningful to me. And this is a whole set of themes uh, surrounding stories and poems in Scripture that are about gardens and temples and mountaintops and the Holy Spirit and prayer and the union of heaven and earth. And apparently I'm going to Try and do all that in the next 25 minutes. <laughs> uh, so, are you guys ready for action? Okay, this is going to be a blitz uh, through um, a whole bunch of passages in the Bible, and I'm going to take you on a tour. Um, and it's actually the same type of tour uh, that I experienced on the mountain, but this is going to be like hyperdrive. Um, and what I'd like to do is invite you into one of these puzzles that I, it's the kind of thing that I puzzle, puzzle about when I go on trail runs. Um, and I invite you to meditate with me on uh, a well-known story um, from uh, Luke's account, the Gospel of Luke's account of Jesus' crucifixion. And it's the moment where uh, the criminal who sees who Jesus is has this moment. And um, it's a very famous scene. And what he um, says to Jesus is this. You should see it here. Then the criminal said, Jesus, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, do you know the line? Today, you will be with me in paradise. So, on one level, here's my hunch, is that most of us have seen this as a very beautiful, merciful thing that Jesus offered to this criminal. And that's, that's true, and that's right. Uh, my other hunch is that um, most of us have taken the word paradise and we've just, without knowing it, swapped it in our minds with the word heaven. Yeah? I'll meet you in heaven later today because we're going to be dead. So, and you're not entirely wrong in doing that, but notice Jesus doesn't say, I'll meet you later today in heaven. He says, I'll meet you later today in paradise. And that is a very curious thing to say. Here's why. Um, the word for paradise um, that is used in Luke's account, which he wrote the account in, in Greek, um, the Greek word is, you actually already know it, paradesos. Um, it's just, in other words, our word paradise is not even an English word. It's just a Greek word spelled with English letters. And here's what's interesting about that word, is that is the word that uh, Jewish scholars 
who uh, were brilliant and trilingual and knew Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. About 200 years uh, before Jesus, they rendered the whole Hebrew Bible into Greek so that the Bible would be accessible to Greek-speaking Jews who didn't know Hebrew anymore. And the Hebrew word that they were translating when they used paradesos, which is the word that Jesus is referring to here, is the Hebrew word gan. And what's also interesting about all of these words is that they mean garden. You guys tracking with me? Garden. So what on earth does it mean for Jesus to say to someone as they're dying, I will meet you later today in the garden? What does that mean? Now, here's the thing. Jesus, um, and I am very proud to be in good company with Jesus here, he was a Bible nerd for sure. (laughs) He was a lot more, like way, way, way more, but he was not less than a Bible nerd. He was a Bible nerd. And he was very learned in the scriptures. It's just constantly, his language is uh, filled, his teachings are filled with images drawn from the narratives and poems of Hebrew scripture. And so there's there's only one garden that's like that he could be talking about uh, with a mind filled with the Hebrew scriptures, and it's the garden that appears on page two of the stories of Genesis, the Garden of Eden. So in the Garden of Eden, in chapter two, it it begins with this desolate, wild wilderness, and there's no plants, and there's no humans, and so God provides the stream that comes up out of the ground, and it makes mud, and so mud can do, God can do two things with the mud uh, that he's created with the water, he can plant a garden, and he can form a human. And then he puts the human in the garden, and the garden is called the Garden of Eden. Now, these chapters are highly debated by followers of Jesus, and they have been, well, actually not for a long time, especially in the last 300 years for all kinds of reasons. That would be a whole other talk that I would love to give sometime. But anyway, that's all different thing. Uh, but here's what everybody agrees on, no matter what views they hold on the interpretation of these chapters, is that this story is set in the past. Are you with me? It's, it's in the beginning, yeah? Okay, nothing controversial about that. So this just raises the stakes of our puzzle because what does it mean for Jesus to say, I'll see you, you'll be with me in the Garden of Eden later today when we're dead? And what does that mean when the garden that he's talking about is the garden that was planted in the beginning? Are you with me? So this raises a question, my friends. Um, and I'll, it's just a very simple question. When, when is paradise? And it was just very simple what we've done. We've looked up a word. Hmm, here's a word here in one place in the Bible. Here's another place where it appears in the Bible. Are you with me? I'm not, there's no tricks. I don't have a magic hat or anything. It's just like, when is paradise? It's a very straightforward question. So here's one thing we know. We know that it is in Jesus and the criminal's immediate future, like later this afternoon when we're dead. And that paradise, or is it that paradise is in the beginning, like way, 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 way in the past? Um, And here's the thing, these are not all your options. So we were in Genesis, let's hop to the other end of the Christian Bible and go to the last book of the Bible, in fact, like the last of the last pages, like the chapters 21 and 22 of the Revelation. And here's what you find, John has this apocalypse, an unveiling of the future of the whole whole cosmos, and what he sees is he sees a heaven, excuse me, a city coming down out of the heavens, and it's the new Jerusalem. Yeah? You guys know this, know this passage? It's beautiful. You should, we should all think about these passages way more than we probably, uh, probably do. I saw a new sky and a new land, and the first sky and the first land passed away. There's no longer any sea. 
And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. So there's a city descending from the skies. But then, as he gets a virtual tour around this city, what he discovers is it's a garden. Chapter 22, then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and the Lamb, and in the middle of its street, and on either side of the river was the tree of life is there, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So now we're not just at like the future for Jesus and the criminal. We're like in the future future, like the cosmic future. Okay, so now let's ask our question again. When is paradise, my friends? Is it in the past? Is it in the future? Or is it in the future future? You tracking with me? And these are not all your options. There's more. <laughs> there's more options. And just look up the word paradise in the New Testament, and you'll find there's one other time that it occurs. And it occurs in this fascinating passage where the Apostle Paul is talking about something that remark remarkable that happened to him in prayer 14 years ago. This is in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And, well, I'll just we'll let his words uh, frame the issue for us. He says, I'll go on to visions and revelations that he's had from the Lord. <laughs> this is funny. So he talks about himself in third person, like I had this friend who this thing happened to. Um, and he's going to say in, uh, later in the paragraph that it's him, but, you know, it's, work with me. So I know a man in the Messiah who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, yeah, third tiers of, of, of the skies. Now, whether this was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this guy, whether in the body or out of the body, yeah, I'm not really sure. God definitely knows. I was, uh, he was caught up to where? To paradise. Now, what's curious about this, notice that he's swapped out heaven and paradise, yeah? They're interchangeable terms for him. And he had this experience where... Like he says very clearly, I don't know if I was in my body, out of the body, but he was in a state of deep meditative prayer, and all of a sudden he was not where he thought he was anymore. He was in paradise. Now, even though Paul says that this happened 14 years ago, when it did happen, he didn't experience paradise as something in the cosmic future or something in the past. It was very much in his present moment. You guys tracking with me? So, okay, let's lay out all of our options now. <laughs> when is paradise? I ask you. Is it in the past? Is it available in the present? Is it available in the future, like maybe after we die? Or is it available in the cosmic future future for the whole universe? You guys tracking with me? Okay, so this is a genuine puzzle. And these are the things that I like to think about when I go trail running. <laughs> so, I, ho I hope... Uh, that you just have a, some kind of deep intuition inside of you that the answer to the question is yes. <laughs> and you may, not, you may not know why that that would be a right answer to this question, um, but you really need to know that you are right. You're, pro you're probably more right than you really un understand. And actually, within... Um, the Revelation, the last book of the Bible, we were at the last book of the Bible at the end of it, uh, a key to this riddle is actually right in the first chapter of the Revelation when John has his apocalypse. Um, and this is, this is important. To un How are you guys doing? Okay, all right. It's my idea of a very good time, just so you know. 
<clears throat> so John um, hears uh, God speaking, and then, he, as he's going to describe, goes right into a really remarkable apocalypse experience that he had. He heard the Lord God say, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, I was, where was he? I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus and on the Lord's day, and where is he now? He's in the spirit, on the island, in the spirit, on the Lord's day. Do you see part of the key to our riddle here? How does God introduce himself to John? The Alpha and the Omega, which are the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. And then a very self-evident explanation of what that means. The one who was, and the one who is, and the one who is to come. And what's remarkable is right after this, you just go and read on in, in the Revelation, is John is all of a sudden on the island in the spirit, and then he's in heaven. And he's in the heavenly temple, and he encounters this human-looking figure who's on fire, and like lightning rays flashing from this person. And he realizes he's encountering the risen Jesus, and risen Jesus invites John to write you know, seven letters, famous seven letters to the seven churches. And to uh, the church of Ephesus in the letter, Jesus says that for those in Ephesus who overcome the life-threatening obstacles that are in their way, that are going to try and prevent them from being faithful to me, to those who overcome, I will give them the authority to eat from the tree of life that is in, that is in paradise of God. So there are moments, I think, when we come to Scripture and we feel like our minds are breaking, <laughs> or we just come across like, I don't, really don't understand what's going on here. Those are really, really important moments, because they're there on purpose. And they're there as an invitation, usually, at least for me, to see that the way Jesus and the apostles and prophets viewed reality is in a way that is fundamentally different from me. Apparently, paradise is the kind of place that you can have access to no matter when you are, right? And it's tied to the identity of the one that everybody seems to encounter in paradise, which is the person, right? The personal presence of a beautiful heart and mind. Jesus and the apostles and the prophets, their fundamental view of reality is that there is a, a I'm going to struggle with language here, but you know, it's like inviting a dog to try and explain algebra. It's sort of like, well, you know, but I'm going to do my best. So there's some layer, realm, dimension of reality that actually isn't perceivable by our five senses, right? Smell, hearing, taste, and touch. But Jesus takes this for granted which is why they don't try and prove it. This is just how he saw reality. And this dimension of reality, it's, it's not just that it's real, even though you can't perceive it. It's actually more real than what we think is real. And this dimension of reality is not a place or a time. It's a person. It's a person. And it's a person whose essence is outpouring, others-centered, life-giving energy and love and power. 
And that, the, paradise is a person. And that's why you can encounter paradise in the past, in the present, in the future, or in the future, future. You guys tracking with me? And, and they take it for granted that this is actually the most real reality that you could ever come into contact with. And for lots of different reasons, we, um, it, it's like we're invited to see that the world that we experience is like a subversion of reality. And the most real reality is where the huckleberries are. Yeah? Are you tracking with me? Yeah? In, in other words, John, where is John? And when is John? <laughs> he's on an island of Patmos, and he's at his moment. But yet he sees and he has these experiences that all of these other people have had at different moments in history. And sometimes, for some way, they are transcending their moment and meeting the one who is the eternal now and the perpetual present. And I, I th I'm pretty sure that believing that this is the truest version of reality is part of what's involved in being a Christian. Yeah? Um, the problem is that um, I actually really struggle to believe that vision of reality. And I don't think it's because I'm a bad person or it's because I'm stupid. It's because I live in a built environment, right, that has been shaped by centuries and centuries of human culture and interlaced with that, what Paul would call the principalities and the power, the powers. And these are powers at, at work that are tr trying to get us to to believe that the perceivable world is all that there is, that if it can't be perceived by my senses, it's not actually real. It, it's actually a completely upside-down version of, of reality. And a part of my journey of learning how to see the huckleberries is really confronting that my default view of reality, I don't even know how this happened, but living in Portland, it's just like it's in the water or something. Uh, but I had come to have as my default view of reality a, a naturalist, materialist view of reality. And therefore, what is prayer in that? Prayer is like talking to fairies, you know what I'm saying? It's like talking to the imaginary what, whatever. Like that's, the, that's the, the space that prayer occupies if that's your vision of reality. And so this wasn't just like, this wasn't just a set of experiences that I needed to have. My whole vision of reality needed a fundamental overhaul. And I'm a Bible nerd. Like, how did that happen to me? Are you guys with me? And I really don't think I'm alone in this, in saying all of this out loud. <laughs> all right? am, I the, am I alone here? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? And I, maybe in this room, some of you uh, don't have a problem with this, but I guarantee um, that your church communities are filled with people who have the same struggle that I do. And you need to be able to talk about it and to explore why a vision of, of reality that is only consists of what is material and perceivable, it is actually a completely irrational view of reality. And, so, and I won't turn this into a philosophy lecture, though I really want to right now, right? But there's a whole tour that you could take to show in a very common sense, reasonable way that the real superstition is in a naturalist, materialist view of reality. Are you with me? Now, and I'm not trying to like just be, like do, you know, play rhetoric here. Like, actually, I really deeply believe that, but what I needed to undergo was an overhaul in my imagination. None of that was in my notes. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> so, 
Um, when is paradise? Paradise is when you encounter the eternal now. But um, this passage in, in the Revelation also raises an interesting and kind of parallel question, which is where in, is paradise? Because where, where was John when he encountered the risen Jesus in the paradise of God? Where was he? He was on an island. Yep, he was on an island. Now, if I had a lot more time, I would tell you the story of Jacob. Yeah? Um, the story of Jacob is uh, the story about a guy <laughs> who uh, he and his mom just swindled and lied and cheated their father uh, and brother out of the inheritance of the right of the firstborn. You guys know this story? It's a pretty famous one in, in Genesis. And so Jacob's brother wants to kill him. And so it's a good reason to flee your home. And so he flees his home. And so uh, we're just told uh, that when he flees, he's somewhere between his home in Be'er Shiva and his relatives' uh, home a couple hundred miles away in Haran. And here's how the story goes. Perhaps, perhaps you know it. Jacob left Be'er Shiva. He went out for Haran. And when he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones and he put it under his head and he laid down to sleep. And then he had a dream. That is, that is key for understanding what's going on here. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the land with its top reaching up to the sky. He sees a portal between heaven and earth. Yeah? So uh, a thin place. A, a place where heaven and earth are not separate places. They are one and the same place. And he sees messengers of God ascending and descending on it. And then who does he see there? Somebody like a human figure named Yahweh. And Yahweh says, I am Yahweh. I am with you. Oh, remember um, what Jesus said to the criminal hanging next to him. He said, you will be with me in paradise. And now here is Yahweh saying, right, to a swindler and a cheat of his own dad, I am with you in this paradise, heaven on earth place. I'm going to keep you wherever you go. And when Jacob woke up, he is freaked out. He said, the Lord's in this place. I, di I didn't even know it. I didn't even know it. I'm surrounded by huckleberries. And I didn't even know it. And he was freaked out. He said, this place is freaky. <laughs> This is none other than the house of God. This is a, the gate of the skies. It's a portal between, between heaven and earth. And, and this is really remarkable because notice, I mean, this, this guy is in desperate straits here. And he's going to be exiled for 20 years from his family. And it's this guy that Yahweh reaches out to and says, I am with you here. And notice that it's not that Jacob went to a sacred, holy heaven and earth spot because he wanted to encounter Yahweh, he just wakes up. Excuse me, he doesn't wake up. It's the opposite. He goes to sleep, and he's having a dream. Sorry, I don't know why I said that. He falls asleep, and that's uh, where he encounters this heaven-on-earth place, and that's what makes um, the place sacred and holy. Now, um, time also doesn't uh, allow me to tell you the story of Ezekiel, and I really will be short on this one. So this is a story from Ezekiel chapter 8, and Ezekiel is uh, he's in Babylon, He's an exiled among the community of exiles in, in Babylon, and we're told that he's in a house. Yeah? Okay. Ezekiel chapter 8. In the sixth year, sixth month, fifth day, I was sitting in my house. Where is he? He's in my house. And the elders of Judah were sitting before me, and then all of a sudden, the hand of Lord Yahweh came on me there. It's remarkable. I, I looked, 
and I saw a figure like a human, and he's on fire. And from his appearance, it was like glowing metal. He stretched, this is remarkable, look, look at the language here. He stretched what looked like a hand out to me and took me by the, uh, the tzitzit, it's a Hebrew word, the tzitzit of my head, lock of hair. And then that hand is all of a sudden the spirit. And then the spirit lifted me up where? Between land and sky. Now, if you're in between land and sky, where are you? <laughs> right? So, well, you're in a house, you're in Babylon. Are you guys with me? So this is, this is crucially important. So in a, a silly way to answer, so where is paradise, my friends? Is it on a Greek island? Because I want to go vacation there if it is. You know? um, is it in a random field somewhere in ancient Mesopotamia? Or is it in a house in, in Babylon? And I just hope by this point, you know that the answer to this question is yes. Yeah? It's yes. It's yes. And we're, once, we're bumping up against another one of these areas where the biblical authors just have a fundamentally different view <laughs> of the relationship of, of heaven and earth and, and of reality than we do. Notice that in all... Let me stack up another set of interesting observations about all of these texts. Did you notice how many of these passages involve people with heightened or expanded states of consciousness? Prayer, yeah, sleep, right, dreaming. So what's so interesting, and this is another way that, you know, we all get brainwashed into a naturalist, materialist view of the world, is, you know, Sigmund Freud is a very complicated figure, and I actually shouldn't even be talking about him right now, because I really don't know, <laughs> right? But we've received this, we've received, right, this inheritance, um, his view of the human psyche, uh, such that we actually believe that altered states of consciousness are when we're most deluded about reality. And Jesus and the apostles and prophets see, thing exact, they see it exactly the opposite way. They actually believe that it's precisely we, and we are in heightened, altered states of consciousness, and, and particularly when we are in vulnerable states of consciousness, that we are most in touch with reality as it really is. And it, once again, I'm not just, this isn't just rhetoric, like this is how things are. And, I, and I'm not a psychologist, but think about how, how this works and how important this, this pattern is. So we, we come into the world, which is just this really remarkable and crazy, crazy place that any of us are here on the flying space rock, like here right now. And so we come into this world in a very vulner completely vulnerable, oblivious state of consciousness. And it takes humans like years to wake up to reality. But here's the thing is we don't really wake up to reality because from our earliest conscious memories, what's happened is we're being hurt, we're being disappointed, we're, ha we're taking on all of these emotional wounds through trauma and painful conflicts in our relationships. And you guys know this, or at least you ought to know this, is that we develop from a very early age all of these coping mechanisms and ways of interpreting and dealing with reality um, so that we can survive. And what happens is as we become young adults, we actually begin to filter reality through this deeply distorted lens. And it's actually in usually in situations of trauma, right? When the surfaces and you find your body or yourself reacting to a situation that, and it's like totally irrational. You're like, why did I do that? Why did I respond that way? And it's because our vision of reality gets wired into our brains from our early conscious memories. But there's something that happens when we are in vulnerable states of consciousness, especially sleep, because we're not unconscious 
when we're sleeping, are you guys with me? We're just not in an active state of consciousness. And all of a sudden, we're in that most vulnerable state. And I think what Jesus and the apostles and prophets would invite us to see is it's actually in those moments when we are most surrendered, when we are in states of serene, calm, surrender, vulnerability, that we are most in touch with reality as it really is. And what the biblical authors are inviting us to see is that those are precisely the moments that we have the potential to encounter the person who is paradise and the person who is the eternal now. And our sister who was crying out how beautiful Jesus is just a few minutes here ago as we were worshiping, like that's reality. Do you know what I'm saying? That's reality. And so, um, let me, how you guys doing? Okay. So, um, can I uh, read you one more story? Yeah, okay. This is the last one. I mean it. Um, from the gospel, the gospel according to Luke. Um, this is a well-known story. So Jesus uh, takes three of his closest friends up to a mountain. Uh, this is in Luke chapter 9. He took Peter, James, and John with him up onto a mountain to do what? To pray. And so we need to know this isn't like they're not reciting Bible verses up there, right? Like they, these are men who have been shaped by the deep, deep daily rhythms of prayer and contemplation. And when they go up to a mountain to pray, what they're doing is to expand their conscious awareness of the presence of huckleberries on top of that mountain. As he was praying, what happens? The appearance of his face changed. He's on fire. <laughs> and he actually becomes the one that Jacob saw in that field and that Ezekiel encountered and that John is going to encounter on the island. Are you guys with me? Like... Like, he becomes the one that everybody seems to see when they enter paradise. And these two other guys, Moses and Elijah, that's a whole rabbit hole that is awesome, but we don't have time to go on. But then look at this. Then a, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid. And they enter into a cloud. Where are they now? They're in heaven. They were on the mountain. Now they're in heaven. And everything centers around their experience and their encounter with the eternal now with the person who, who is paradise. And they hear this voice from heaven, and what is revealed to them is the identity of the eternal now. And that one's name is it's Jesus. It's Jesus. So for lots of different reasons, I found myself two-plus decades into a journey of following Jesus where I, I realized, like, I... I have had a severely underdeveloped soul. And when I mean soul, I don't mean just like the immaterial part. I mean the core of my being, my whole embodied self. And one of the most important things that happened to me in uh, this spiritual renewal in my life is I, um, I went to a spiritual director, and um, my spiritual director has been a real gift to me, encouraged me to um, not open my Bible first thing every morning, which is not something I would recommend to everybody, but it's what I needed to do. Um, and to sit uh, in a period of silence and to sit in a body posture that indicated surrender and openness and to sit in the dark and to ask God to speak to my whole self in a way that I could comprehend and that I could understand. And so I began to do that. 
And do you want to know what happened? Nothing happened. <laughs> like for a really long time, nothing happened. Um, like for a year, nothing happened. And um, I was inspired by a, a friend to um, begin praying more specifically with my kids. And so I thought, well, I guess I, I'm a Christian, and so I'm going to pray with my kids. And so even though I'm not sure it will do anything, I'm sorry to confess that, but that's where I was at at the time. And so, you know, I would ask my, my sons, I have two little boys, about pain in their lives or things, you know, that were difficult for them. And they would tell me stories about, like, um, you know, well, somebody said I was stupid at recess or so-and-so doesn't like me anymore. And so I'd be like, let's pray about that. And it was so silly, you guys. But I began to pray with my sons about these very simple issues in their lives. And just within a week or two, it just started happening that, like, those things would resolve. And they would come home and be like, oh, yeah, we're friends now. And I realized I had this choice to make because I could really rationalize all that away. Or I, I could choose to believe that God was responding to my prayer but that he, he was doing it through the medium of my relationships and the closest people that I love. And so I began to uh, encounter friends um, who were like that woman <laughs> in the bushes. Um, and these were people in my life who were like, had mouths full of huckleberries, like purple stained teeth, you know? Um, and my dear friend Tyler was one of these people in my life. And like, he really believes this vision of reality that Jesus does. And I began to learn how to pray again through the help of my friends Beautiful. in ways. Uh, it was their faith that helped me believe in a new way again. And I had this really remarkable experience, you guys. Um, last summer, I, I got this terrible infection in the back of my throat. And my throat uh, sw swelled up. It almost spelled like about 30% closed. And uh, when I went to the doctor, they were like, this is serious, uh, we, and you need to have a surgery, like, my, uh, like a minor procedure, but anytime you have sharp instruments going to the back of your mouth, like, it's not a pleasant thing to look forward to. <clears throat> and it was really painful. And so I, um, I scheduled, you know, the, uh, the surgery, and we were going to go uh, to some friends' houses for dinner. These are some new friends um, that we met at, at our Bridgetown church and our church community. And, and um, those friends called me back, and they asked if they could come pray that my throat would be healed. And so they did, and it was really, it was really beautiful, and it was, it was really powerful. And so I went to bed that night, and I woke up in the morning, and, I, you know, it was still painful and really swollen. I'm like, okay, uh, I have to wait till 11 o'clock, so I'm just going to play Lego all morning. And so that's what I did uh, with my boys. <laughs> Um, and I don't, I just, I got up to go put on my shoes to go have surgery to deal with my throat, and um, I walked by the bathroom, and I don't know what to tell you guys, except my throat completely decreased in swelling as I walked in the hallway. And I went to the doctor, and they said, you're fine. We don't need to do anything at all. And I, you guys, I was just like, <laughs> I'm, I'm probably taking, too, I'm probably talking for too long. I'm going like way longer than I should have, but I, I have you in my story. You know what I mean? So, uh, um, I really, I, re I mean, I couldn't believe it. Like, I'm just staring at this doctor going like, what, 
What do you mean? You know what I mean? And it was like it was that I, my, my reality was breaking open. My vision of reality was breaking open. And I, what I realized was that, like, God cares about my throat. Like, He cares about me, you know? And He cares that, like, here's this nerd, you know, who's trying to follow me and trying to teach other people about me. And, uh, you know, He's allowing me to do it, but, like, like, it's been so long since I've had an encounter that felt so real that I couldn't deny it. And as I was in there in that doctor's office, I was just like, well, this is so, truth is stranger than fiction. You guys with me? <clears throat> so uh, I spent all summer, the rest of the summer, like wondering, what, what's that about? Like, it was such a gift. And so I was giving this talk a week and a half ago. So remarkable, you guys. And, and at, at my church. And so I told the story, and afterwards, there was a woman named Danielle who came up. She was the first person that I talked to, and she said, Tim, you know, you um, have a whole podcast series, and you made a video about the Hebrew word for soul. And maybe I've taught some of you that word through the video. Anybody? Yes. What's the Hebrew word? Nefesh. nefesh. Yeah, nefesh. Do you remember the most literal meaning of nefesh? throat. And, she, and Danielle said to me, God healed your nephesh, and he's healing your nephesh. Yeah? So I mean, here's the thing, like, this is very unique. This will be the thing like Paul will be like, once 14 years ago, you know, <laughs> but like, and I'm not, I'm not trying to say that every time we pray, and try to become aware of the presence of God, that, like things like this will happen. But here's the thing, you guys, like I really want to change my default because I really, re I just have this deep hunch that there are more and more huckleberries to be tasted than, than you and I would ever, ever imagine. Are you guys with me? And if there are more huckleberries to be had, and if that is what we are after in this thing called prayer, then I want a lot of prayer. I want a lot of prayer in my life. Are you with me? Yeah. Um, I just, I really, I really, I don't know what else to say. <clears throat> this is why I really resonate with the 24-7 prayer movement because, like, this is the heart of what it's about, you know? And, like, you can build skate parks and reach out to skateboarders. You can, like, teach Bible through creative videos. But, like, what a sad reality if you aren't actually eating the huckleberries and allowing them to heal, to heal your soul. You know what I'm saying? And so I don't know where you're at tonight. Um, I know a lot of you, you know, came and knelt here last night and um, are in places where many of you are feeling a sense of loss, of sacrifice, of surrender. And so, my friends, I just, um, I would invite you uh, to consider the one that we are reaching out to in prayer. And I really believe that the beautiful mind and heart that is the source of all reality, the being who is utter in that being's own essence, outpouring, healing, self-giving love, that is the one that we are invited to taste and to see when we pray. So would you come, merciful Father? Would you come, Lord Jesus? 
Would you come, Holy Spirit? We want to taste, we want to taste the healing power of your love. Our souls need to be healed. Our imaginations need to be shattered and rebuilt. Would you open our eyes to see what is all around us at every moment of our existence? Come, Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message helps guide you on your spiritual journey of discovering the life and message of Jesus. We update this podcast weekly, so why not hit subscribe and journey with us? Who are we? Westside Gathering is a local church in the West Island of Montreal. We're a simple community of faith where we want you to feel welcome, even if you're not into church or religion. We meet every Sunday, but you can also find smaller groups, environments, and resources for all ages between Sundays. Find out more at westsidegathering.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Vimeo. We'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, ask for help, or let us know how we can pray for you. If you'd like to contribute financially, just go to westsidegathering.com forward slash giving. Until next time, peace.